Hey, 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 welcome back to the Rifles Only Accuracy Podcast, everything center fire and rim fire. I apologize for the delay on getting this podcast out. I know that we were we were going pretty schedule, pretty good with the schedule, and it turned out that uh, we just got busy training classes, the training tempo's gone up, and uh, getting the range ready and everything else has taken a lot of time. I didn't want to, uh, I do know that I have some questions that I need to answer that came in on ROAP, Rifles Only Accuracy Podcast. Uh, ROAP at riflesonly.com if you got any questions, anything like that that you have uh, pertaining to the podcast, any guest, uh, anything that you need to know about uh, shooting and centerfire. And Jack, I will get to you on the levels. Uh, I've been looking at that quite a bit, so just give me a little bit of time. Um, so started after uh, we started off the uh, training season, and how's that better? Okay, we started out the training season. We we did some some work, uh, some contractual work that we had to get done, and then we did a little PR one last weekend, and we're at a PR one and two this week. And I have a very interesting person in my class, and I wanted to first give you a little bit of his background, and then we're going to talk to him uh, personally about some of the stuff that he has done. So Dr. Babry served 35 years in the United States Army. Enlisting at age 17, he served for over a decade as an Army Ranger and Special Forces Medical Sergeant, where he deployed multiple times to Central and South America, Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. In 1993, he served in Mogadishu, Somalia, as a member of Task Force Ranger, where he was awarded the Silver Star, Purple Heart, and the Purple Heart following the Black Hawk Down battle. His experience as a combat medic in Somalia inspired him to become a military physician. Dr. Mabry, earned, Dr. Mabry earned his bachelor's degree from Campbell University in Buell's Creek, North Carolina, between deployments as a Special Forces medic and his medical degree from the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland. He completed his res residency in emergency medicine and his fellowship in emergency medical services at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, which is Bamsey to the rest of us. During his career as an Army physician, Dr. Mabry became a recognized leader in operational medicine. Following residency, he returned to Special Forces as a battalion surgeon and was awarded the Bronze Star for operating a four forward aid station on the Afghan-Pakistan border during Operation Enduring Freedom. He subsequently served in several positions focused on improving battlefield care. And I can go on and on and on. <laughs> I knew I wasn't going to be able to read all this. I read about 25% of it. Uh, so at any rate, welcome. Welcome, Robert. Thanks yeah. for being here. Yeah, thanks, Jacob. Really appreciate you having me on your podcast. Man, I, I appreciate you. It was kind of like I, 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 you came in the room and you introduced yourself as, as Robert Mabry. And I said, man, where have I heard that name? Where have I heard it? I couldn't quite put my finger on it. It took me a couple of days to figure it out, but I figured it out where you were. And so then I went and stalked you on the internet to find out all the rest of this crap <laughs> that I didn't know. And uh, it turns out that uh, I'm just very lucky to have you have you on here. We we have a, a listenership that's pretty interested in this in this topic that you're obviously a subject matter expert on. We had the we had the uh, emergency medical director from New Orleans on uh, Dr. Sean Hardy before and that really generated a lot of interest. You know, people do that. They want to they want to know about this. And now I could go, I, there's so many different rabbit holes I could go down talking to you. I mean, I could talk to you about your time as a ranger and in special forces and all that, and, and that's fine. But what I'm really interested in is you developed a two-year program. And can you tell me about that? Can it just explain that to the listeners a little bit more? That program is, is it sounds very interesting to me. Yeah, so um, it, it kind of uh, was a natural extension of my career. So so I enlisted initially as a as an Army Ranger the, the day the Rangers jumped into Point Salinas Airfield in Grenada. I was actually at the MEP station, signing my contract. And so uh, 
um, signed up to be a, 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 a ranger, and then I was one of the original members of the newly formed 3rd Ranger Battalion. When they activated, I was there in the regimental activation ceremony in October of 1984. And then uh, then uh, got brainwashed, re-enlisted. You know, my plan was to get out and take my college money, go back to go back and go to school. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, once, you get, once you get your tab, you know, life's not so bad in the Ranger Battalion. And, right. And uh, ha- had some really good leaders that kind of mentored me in that direction. And so signed up to be an, a special forces medic in the bonus extension and reenlistment program, what they called the BEAR program back then. And so I didn't have any medical knowledge at that mm-hmm. time. I had no inclinations of being, you know, higher up in the medical food chain as a doctor or a PA or whatever. All I knew at, at that point was three things. Number one is that was the toughest enlisted school in the Army. It had the highest attrition rate at that time, mm-hmm. like a 90% attrition rate. So that's one. Number two, it had the highest reenlistment bonus of any enlisted MOS in the Army at the time, like thirty grand back in the eighties, which was it was a lot of money. Yeah, a lot of money back in the eighties. So, yep. so money. Uh, and then number three, at that time, the training, a large part of it was at Fort Sam Houston, which was home of the medical department, which meant girls. And I'm right. a young single Army Ranger, and so you know I had the trifecta: bragging rights, money, and girls. So you know why else would a twenty twenty one year old guy do something? So. Got into medicine and uh, uh, really enjoyed it. And so during the Special Forces medic training, I'm in the hospital working, and I and I make a couple of calls that the doctors had missed, you know, based on my training. I'm like, well, hell, I could do this. Mm-hmm. I mean, how hard could it be? These people are doing it. All, all I need is like a four-year degree, a bunch of science classes, and some test called the MCAT, you know, no big deal. Nothing to it. Yeah. So uh, it actually took a lot of work, though. So oh, uh, I know it did. <laughs> I went to, Went to Fort Bragg and went to a scuba team on in Seven Special Forces group, um, and then just kind of started chipping away at night classes. I was not a good high school student, so I had like a two point four GPA in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, worked you know full time pretty much all through high school. Um, so uh, so going to college was not kind of the focus that I was uh, you know looking at. So joining the army was kind of my way to get out of my small town and see the world, get some money for college, come back and go to school, and that was my plan. So. So uh, got into medicine, really enjoyed it. Started chipping away at the night classes in between deployments. And it's just, you know, it's hard having a, a young family and then going to school, you know, in between deployments mm-hmm. and then deploying, you know, at that time, six to eight months out of the year. Right. That was even before the GWAT. Right. So, right. Uh, you know, SF guys spend a lot of time away from home. And uh, so after about five years of, uh, of doing that, I was able to get my undergrad requirements knocked out. Um, enough science courses to take the MCAT, did well enough to to get into the Uniformed Services School and my state school. Well, that's no small feat going part-time and getting out in five years. And it took a lot of time, a lot, yeah. of, a lot of nights and weekends. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you, you didn't have much time to screw around. Yeah. And then uh, then I'm doing my, my emergency medicine residency, and then that's when 9-11 happened. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, all my friends were still back in the force, you know, back and soft. They were all getting ready to deploy. And and uh, I still had another, at least a year of residency left. And so finished residency and then uh, uh, trained in emergency medicine. And then I went right back to SF as a battalion surgeon in 1st Special Forces Group. And and I did the uh, first Afghan deployment with 1st okay. Special Forces. So I spent the whole time up forward on the Pakistani border, uh, ran a couple of aid stations up there. And, and uh, you know, really because of my enlisted background and my emergency medicine skills my boss let me uh you know spend all my time forward with the guys where at that time it was about a three-hour medevac leg right right and so what was that like operating out there i know that the word austere is used um i can imagine 
Yeah, no, it was great, and and, um, and my background prepared me perfectly for that. I mean, I was used to being on a on a SF team as an eighteen Delta, working in places like that, and then uh, so I could really translate that to the mission and help the commanders, you know, augment what they were trying to do on the ground by doing medcaps. And I wasn't afraid to go outside the wire and go on patrol with the guys, and you know, do what needed to be done. Right. Um, but uh, so it was a great deployment, a really a great team there at at, uh, at first group, really one of the. One of the best parts of my career was serving them as a battalion surgeon. Oh, very cool. Where to go from there? So uh, I went to the Army Staff College, um, and then I went back and did fellowship for a year. So this this uh, this um, this notion of kind of battlefield care and forward medical care being a subspecialty of medicine of its own really kind of intrigued me because a lot of stuff that I trained for. Um, even going back to Mogadishu, supposed to be one of the best trained medics in the world. And a lot of stuff we did back then in the early mm-hmm. 90s was just was just wrong. It was just dumb. Yeah. I mean, you know, the whole, you know, if you, if you have trauma above your neck, above your shoulder blades, getting a C-call run everybody and two large bore IVs and, and crystalloid or, you know, basically saltwater infusions to expand the volume and tourniquets were a last resort. And if you needed an airway, you got, you know, endotracheal intubation, which was a tube, you know, down mm-hmm. your throat. I mean, a lot of that training was just conceptually flawed mm-hmm. because it was based on civilian EMS that people that didn't have especially knowledge there in that space just translated out to the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at civilian EMS, what, you know, and, and how paramedics train, it's really basically based around two conditions. You know, so the high level of training, the National Registry of Paramedic, is really centered on two things: one medical. And one trauma. So what's the common thing paramedics train for medical? I mean, what takes up most of their time and training? Old people having heart attacks, right? right? Advanced cardiac life support. Right. Well, I mean, on the battlefield, it's not old people having heart attacks. Right. And then, you know, the other thing for trauma is drunk people crashing their cars, you right. know, and injuring their neck or spinal column, something like that, orthopedic injuries. I mean, in the, on the battlefield, it's penetrating trauma and right. blast injury. So we took a paradigm meant for civilian medicine and we shrapnelated it out in the battlefield and we expected it to work. And, you know, um, I'm about four or five years into my career as a doctor this time and I realized that, um, you know, the Army didn't have any experts in battlefield medicine. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had good surgeons, we had good physicians, we had good people that could, you know, take care of people in hospitals and clinics and things like that. But as far as having an intellectual framework focused on you know, the types of injuries that you see on the battlefield and how that system has to be oriented to maximize the survival. That's not what Army Medicine did. Okay. And so I figured if, I figured we probably ought to have some expertise in that area. And so by this time, I'm starting to do research because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a fellow. I'm training to be an expert in pre-hospital care, out-of-hospital care. And so I'm, I'm doing uh, all these research projects and going to meetings and meeting people. And I'm, I'm trying to, th- I'm, I'm, you know, thinking about this. Um, well, at this time, or kind of around that time, we, we had looked at, uh, you know, why people die on the battlefield. Um, and, and we found that up to about 25% of those patients that die on the battlefield are potentially salvageable. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's not to say that they're getting bad care. It's just, you know, um, that if care was optimized, we could improve survival out on the battlefield. And that was the biggest place to do it. And I said, well, if we, if the... If the battlefield setting, the pre-hospital setting, before the casualty gets to a surgeon is the place where the most people that have the chance to survive die, 
and that's the biggest place that we can make an impact. It seems to me like the Department of Defense should have some clinically trained, specifically trained experts in that field. Mm-hmm. And at the time, they didn't. And so that's how I come to take over the EMS and Disaster Medicine Fellowship and kind of shape that into a unique program to to train these, what I thought should be the experts and how we think about battlefield care as a system. And that is the two-year program you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. All right. So... That's the that's the reason for it, and then how did what was what was the genesis of it? How did how did you make that fly? Well, so um, I took it over from so a couple of things were going on was the National Association of EMS Physicians, so the National Associate the physician kind of specialty group that that is com- composed of EMS medical directors from all the big cities in the country. They were moving to make EMS, emergency medical services, a subspecialty of emergency medicine with a certifying exam and a a training pathway and all that kind of stuff. And so I knew that was coming. Um, And I knew we had this need to build experts in the DOD in this. Um, And so uh, I got asked if I wanted to take over that fellowship as the program director. And I said, yeah, I'd I'd love to. Here's where I think it should go. And so I sketched this two-year program out to, at the time, the dean of education there at at SAMC, um, who was also coming in new at the same time. Um, And this would be... This would be a new program that had to have some certification things, you know, some certification steps associated with it. It was a lot of kind of upfront work. And so he was intrigued by the vision. I mean, I think the vision pretty much sold itself. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, we're trying to save soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marine out on the battlefield. And, right. you know, here's the biggest place to make an impact. And maybe we ought to change, you know, we ought to train experts in that, in that uh, space at a systematic level. Okay. And so, while you're doing this, it, it, it seems like uh, it seems like a that's a pretty big bite. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot, it was a lot of work, a lot of administrative headache, but also, frankly, a lot of pushback from the folks that kind of were used to the status quo. They're like, you know, hey, look, if your idea is so great, we would have thought of it already. Yeah, um, you know, kind of that circular logic of of of. Um, really kind of associated with the status quo and and, uh, and and people didn't really want to support it. And so it actually got a fair amount of pushback. Uh, I think I got more, I think I got more um, support from my psychiatrist deputy hospital commander, mm-hmm. Air Force psychiatrist, than I did from the Army chief of the emergency medicine department who just oh. didn't see a need for it. So is it um, any reason to back that up, or is it just the typical resistance to change that you find in pretty much any industry? Yeah, I don't really want to kind of get into the kind of the, the uh, personnel personality mm-hmm. politics kind of behind some of that stuff. It's just that, um, you know, uh, th- th- they thought that uh, all respectable doctors, you know, work in the hospital, and uh, this stuff they do outside the hospital is kind of like a hobby. You yeah. know, you really shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um after a while, uh, I uh, moved the fellowship over to the Army's Institute of Surgical Research, where I had a better support. Um, and then uh, it's gone back and forth, you know, back to the department. And it's doing okay now, but it's not, it never really did kind of achieve the vision that I had for it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, what was, what, what specifically were you going, what specific, how are you going to change the mindset, the the procedures? Like, let's just say, for example, um, blast injury. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what was the old way, and then how is the new way to tackle it? 
Well, so so I guess I'll, I'll use a couple things to illustrate this. I always like telling the story about tourniquets, right? So we know about tourniquets. I mean, you've been around uh, uh, for a while. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you know, complete this sentence for me. Tourniquet should be used only as a last resort. A last resort, exactly right. I mean, I, you know, and so this is what I was taught as a medic in Somalia. So I had a guy that had a, a pretty severe gunshot wound to the leg, uh, was bleeding quite a bit. Um, and I, I was afraid that if I put a tourniquet on, I might as well just amputate his leg right there. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up mismanaging that injury and, and causing him to bleed more. And I'm supposed to be a, a pretty high-speed medic. Right. And so I'm starting to dig into this, you know, dig into kind of some of the stuff that I was taught to do. And I'm like, this is stupid. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't comport with what we learned in the literature. So so why are, why are tourniquets, and, that, and then fast forward now, 20 years later, or, or 30 years later, Tourniquets are like in everybody's aid bag. Everybody, everybody's range bag that comes through here probably has a tourniquet. Yeah, so usually one in the bag and one on the belt. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so we really kind of shifted the paradigm on tourniquets. Well, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. Well, because we started kind of digging into it, and and we and you know we have this system, we have this kind of paradigm where you know we learn a bunch during the war, and then all those people that solve those problems, all those doctors and surgeons and nurses that solve those problems, they all get out. Mm-hmm. We lose that institutional knowledge right. only to kind of repeat that trend. And it's a pretty well-documented docu- trend. So that's sometimes called the peacetime effect or the walker mm-hmm. dip. I mean, it's it's uh, it's um, fairly evident if you look at, at kind of how we do things and you read the historical literature, which I have. And not only in medicine, but in other parts of it as well, it seems. Yeah. 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 So going back to tourniquets. So so during the Civil War, each side, the Union uh, and Confederate side, both had access to what was called a strap and buckle tourniquet. So imagine a belt with some teeth in it. You know, as you cinch it down, there's no windlass that you turn, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a strap and buckle tourniquet. This was copied from the Prussian Army in mm-hmm. Germany. Um, both sides had access to it uh, in the Civil War. Uh, World War One, we had that same strap and buckle tourniquet. Mm-hmm. World War Two, we had that same strap and buckle tourniquet. Um, and in 1945, a surgeon named Luther Wolf wrote an article in the Army Medical Journal, uh, uh, which would now be the AMED Journal. Or, or, um, uh, but uh, he wrote an article in 1945. This guy had operated on thousands of people. Uh, you know, Sicily, D-Day, all the, a, very, a very extraordinarily experienced surgeon. And he wrote an article that says, these things don't work. We should get rid of them. Hmm. And so I found that paper from 1945 by Luther Wolf. And then, you know, you want to take a guess on when the strap and buckle tourniquet was finally removed from the DOD inventory? Uh, I don't know, yesterday? 2008. Well, that is yesterday. Yeah. And so why did that happen? Yeah. Why, why did the most well-funded, most sophisticated, technologically advanced military in the world take the number one thing that a soldier could do to save another soldier's life on the battlefield or your own life on the battlefield. Why did it take them, you know, from 1945, flash to bang time, 1945 to 2008? Because it didn't have any experts in this field. Mm -hmm. The other issue is, you know, during World War I is where a lot of this data that came out that said, you know, uh, tourniquets are bad and we shouldn't use them should be only used as a last resort. Right. Right. Well, so so you're imagine you're a famous doctor, right? So back then Dr. Cryle and Halstead, Mayo Brothers, all these famous doctors in the US, they rotated over to France to work in the hospitals during World War One. Well, these guys are the famous people that write the textbooks. They're not up in the trenches at the regimental aid post or the battalion aid stations or even at the division clearance stations. They're well back in the rear, mm-hmm. right? And so how long did it take a casualty to get from the front, from the trench where he's shot in the leg mm-hmm. 
back to Dr. Kyle or Dr. Halstead or Dr. Mayo. How long? Hours. Eight, hours. 18 hours, typically. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, more than a day or so. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right? Could be. Yeah. Yeah. So they see this kid, you know, he's 19 years old. He's got this tourniquet. It cinched down on his leg. His leg is black. It's pulseless, gangrenous. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, I got to cut this kid's leg off. That's the third one I've seen this week. Right. These tourniquets are terrible. We go, they got to go. Mm-hmm. Well, who didn't they see? They didn't see the ones that bled to death in a trench because they didn't get right. a tourniquet. Because they didn't get a tourniquet. Exactly. And then the, the doctors working in the regimental aid post, the battalion aid station, they're the young kids just out of training. They're your, you know, equivalent to your interns and residents. Right. They're lucky if they have time to write a letter home, much less a textbook on, you know, vascular injuries, right? Right. So they don't write about this stuff. They just pass them on up the line. Right. And so this dogma gets inserted in there that tourniquets should only be used as a last resort. Right. And so we lost, you know, a ton of people early in the war because we didn't have proper tourniquets. Hmm. How do you change that? Yeah, how do you change that? Um, <laughs> yeah, so there's a couple ways to change that. Um, some are um, less career-enhancing than others. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at the tactical combat casualty care movement, that's Dr. Frank Butler. Mm-hmm. So right around the time I was in medical school, I was starting to think about, you know, what I learned in Somalia. I did a, I did a, I took two months my senior year of medical school and I'm like, okay, let's, let's figure out the lessons learned for the army, you know, in what was then the biggest infantry battle since, you know, since Vietnam. Right. And there wasn't any. There, they had some AARs about how to move a hospital from Fort Devens, Massachusetts over to the Horn of Africa. That was it. There was nothing about the, the, the battle. And mm-hmm. so, uh, so I did a research project during my senior year of medical school. I actually just requested the medical records of all the people that I knew that were injured and, and you know, worked with some of the senior guys that were surgeons there, Dr. John Holcomb and some others um, that were there in the battle uh, and, and wrote a paper that got published in Journal of Trauma when I was an intern, which was a pretty unique thing for an intern to do is get their first paper published. But uh, And since then, you've had 49 others published. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> a, couple, a couple of book chapters. But yeah. uh, but that paper was ended up being prescient for what we saw in the GWAT. Okay. And so a lot of the stuff we recommended, you know, tourniquets, uh, antibiotics, better pain control, uh, better body armor, you know, um, uh, terrible injuries to the pelvis. Uh, these are things that we saw there in Somalia that we um, that we really able to kind of lean forward a little bit on the GWAT. Mm-hmm. Uh, had the GWAT not happened, I'm not sure a lot of these innovations would have kind of taken hold. Parallel to that time, well, I'm thinking about this, Dr. Butler, former Navy SEAL, uh, you know, Navy SEAL operator uh, who, who also became a doctor. He goes to what they call an advanced trauma life support class. Well, advanced trauma life support class, great class. It's run by the American College of Surgeons. It's kind of the standard two-day course on how non-trauma doctors look after trauma patients. Right. But again, it's oriented toward blunt trauma tourniquets are a last resort. You know, you need two large bore IVs with lots of salt water, you know, to bring up their pressure and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, airways need to be, uh, uh, you need to, you know, put a breathing tube in the patient's throat, um, uh, worry about, you know, broken necks and things like that and, and, uh, and spinal injuries. Well, that's not what we saw on the battlefield. So Dr. Butler, he's got an operational experience as well. So he sees this and then I think it was around around uh, around that same time period that Frank wrote his paper, his first paper about tactical combat casualty care for special operations forces, which kind of which kind of became the the bedrock of what later on became tactical combat casualty care. And so so what Frank recognized was, hey, look, you know, if you're a paramedic on a roadside and there's two of you and you got a bunch of firemen to help you lift the patient and put them on a C spine board, right? How long does that take two trained paramedics to do? 
takes about seven minutes. Mm-hmm. Well, you're going to get a whole lot of people shot in, if you're trying to do that on the battlefield in 17 minutes, yeah. right? It's a lifetime. Uh, and so Frank recognized, hey, look, there's an operational problem here and a medical problem. And if you if you you can do you can do great on the medical problem, but you can get everybody killed too, right? If you're screwing around, you know, on the X taking care of patients, right? Um, and so that's kind of the basis of, of, of TC3 is kind of Frank envisioned it. And then somewhere in there, you know, we we uh, we linked up, and then I was fortunate to be one of the um, early members of the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care. And a, you know, tremendous respect and admiration for Frank and what he's done. He's just he's just done a tremendous amount of service to the country. Mm-hmm. What else? What else did you see that needed to be changed? Because you're, you're talking about, I, I, I'm more interested in like the blast injury. What what's what would be different than that? I mean, because you don't really see that. I mean, often in civilians, what's going on overseas right now? Of course, obviously, but yeah. So so blast injury from a from a pre-hospital care standpoint, it's all pretty much the same, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you only have to do two things to keep the patient alive. You have to make air go in and out, and you have to make blood go around and around. And right. for the blood to go around and around, it needs to stay on the inside, not the outside. Right. Um, and so that's kind of how you approach it, right? So, um, you know, so just some examples, right? So so compared to civilian medicine, pre-hospital care, how I was trained in Somalia, or anybody up until that point, right? So so tourniquets were a last resort and went out. Tourniquet, you know, you followed the March algorithm instead of the ABC algorithm, right? So you address major hemorrhage first because that's the area where you're most likely to die. Um, uh, and then you address uh, the airway, right? So instead of doing endotracheal intubation, if you think about the, the problems, why do you have an airway compromise on the battlefield? Um, oh, it's going to be the trauma to the to the face or neck, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a surgical airway. That's a whole different prospect right. than doing endotracheal intubation, which is which is still a, a physician level skill. Mm-hmm. In, in other words, if you tolerate endotracheal intubation, and I, I stick this basically what's a spatula like a spatula in your back of your throat, and I put a tube down there. If you're unconscious enough for me to do that, you're essentially dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you do, if I do that in the hospital, in the emergency department, I'm going to give you medicine to sedate you and to paralyze you so you can't move. Mm-hmm. When I do that procedure, medics can't do that on the battlefield. Right. Um, and so so it's just a different way of conceptualizing the, the problem, right? So, um, you know, we used to start IVs on everybody. Well, now we know that, that, that two large bore IVs of crystalloid are basically salt water. If you have, if you've bled a lot you and you flood your blood, your blood volume, right? So you bleed a lot, your blood vessels clamp down. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I flood that with two liters, a half a gallon of salt water. What happens? Well, those blood vessels that that have squeezed down and have started to clot and have slowed the blood, the bleeding down mm-hmm. where you're injured, well, those open up mm-hmm. and, and they start to bleed again. And your clotting factors, which are concentrated there, you know, where that blood is is not flowing uh, very well, it's, it's kind of flowing very, very slowly, if at all. Mm-hmm. Well, those are now diluted, and I, I, you know, I blasted out the clots, and I've diluted your your ability to carry oxygen, and and so, you know, we don't do that anymore. Now we, we're talking about giving people whole blood on the battlefield, mm-hmm. which twenty years ago people would have scoffed at, right. Um, so just a, a lot of things like that. You can't take a hospital system or even civilian pre-hospital care system and extrapolate it out in the battlefield. It's different. Yeah. Um, so, so, but as far as blast injuries go, I just would put that in the bucket of, of just that kind of injured personnel in the battlefield. Yeah. You know, until basic you, stuff, breathe, yeah. don't bleed. Yeah. And, and, you know, so what you, what, what the really, the goal is, is to give the surgeon, the person that's going to operate on this casually, 
um, a casualty that has enough physiologic reserve to work with where they can survive surgery. So what it's all about is prolonging the bleeding to death process right. so the surgeon has options. Can get can get to work on it. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Well, you've you've brought up you've brought up tourniquets a couple of times. Yeah. And that that tells me that that is a subject that is um, a, a love hate something with you. You you brought it up a lot, so I want to ask. We know that the old the old way, like you explained it, tourniquet goes on, uh, leg goes gangrenous. Um, what's the best way to use that tourniquet? Well, so I bring up tourniquets a lot just because it's such a great story that people can wrap their head around. Mm-hmm. I mean, I used to I used to talk at EMS meetings twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, early early 2000s. And I'm like, okay, who here has tourniquets on their EMS system? You know, maybe one or two hands would go up. And this is, you know, a couple thousand people in, in, the, right. in the room. Now you ask, you know, who doesn't have tourniquets in their system? Maybe one or two hands would go up. Right. Right. So it's going to, it's been a, a complete evolution where military medicine has informed civilian trauma care, which has been the historical norm. Right. You know, a lot of our trauma care and trauma systems evolved from, you know, World War II, Korea, Vietnam. Right. Um, but uh, it's just it's just such a useful way to kind of illustrate the point of like, well, how do we miss this? Mm-hmm. Is because we didn't have people whose job it was was to was to scan that literature and to think about these things and then feed that back into our, our training systems and our equipment and our and our um, you know leadership channels on on how to make the battlefield care system better. Okay, very good. Well, it looks like you've done a lot of other stuff too. Um, Lots of articles and and book chapters and things like that. What are what are some other topics that you've touched on with medicine? Oh, yeah. So my big thing now is um, is uh, disruptive innovation. So I've talked quite a bit about that, um, and uh, I have a talk that's kind of tongue in cheek that says, "How do you disruptively innovate in a system that wants neither disruption nor innovation, mm-hmm. and not be you know marginalized, fired, found dead in the trunk of your car?" Right, um, man, it's 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 fairly difficult. I wasn't able to to do it necessarily in in the military. Um, you know, hierarchical kind of bureaucratic systems they don't like change for the most part. Right, um, and it's very difficult to do that. It's it, and I, I found it it's it's very challenging to be someone that can really profoundly influence and and move that system in a direction from within the system. Mm-hmm. That that's you know kind of one of the takeaways of, of, of my career. It's very difficult to do. Yeah. Well, you, you've talked about, you know, the articles that you've written and the book chapters. That you have. have you ever thought about writing a book yourself? You know, I, my, my uh, people in my family, other people have asked me that. I, I mean, uh, at this point, no. I, I don't know if I'd, I, I would do that. But uh, eh, maybe someday. Who knows? Never say never. Never say never. Well, you have a, you have a lot to write about. Yeah, but I always kind of thought that, I mean, there's a certain ex-president, I think, that's written like three autobiographies. You mm-hmm. know, there's a little there's a little ego there. And, and so I'm just not sure that uh, that um, might have to think that through. So well, I think that's why I've enjoyed your company so much this week. It's not, there's no <laughs> ego with you at all. It's yeah. just you've been you've been fantastic to have on site. No, I appreciate but, that. Uh, I, I think you should write a book. And I know that my opinion doesn't matter a whole lot to you. Yeah. But I know that there's a lot of people out there that would love to hear about all this. I mean, I was reading your bio it's like um, I had to actually take a break and, you know, go and get some water and come back to it because there's so much in there. I mean, yeah. you, you've really done a lot, and I think there's a, I think there's a story to tell there. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Maybe one of these days. I mean, I, and I'm not the person that does research or writes articles because I like, you know, having that on my CV. Every article I've written has been in an attempt to solve a specific problem. Right. Um, and uh, it's it's very tedious, tedious doing that. Yeah. It takes a lot of time. I don't, I don't mind it, but— uh, 
but yeah, I just don't know how to approach a project like that. I've, I've got, you know, work I've got to do besides that. So maybe one of these days I'll, I'll, I'll change my mind about it and think about it. Very good. What's, what's on, what's on your plate in the future? Um, work till I don't have to work anymore right now. Okay. So, uh, so, um, when I retired from the army, uh, my last job, I was the, the command surgeon and, and commander of the JSOC medical unit, which was just a phenomenal, uh, you know, last job in the military. I mean, just, mm-hmm. it doesn't get any better than the people there at JSOC, a great team there, extraordinary leaders. I mean, people that I would just follow around with a notebook, yeah. you know, just for the leadership lessons and the leadership right. pearls. I mean, just phenomenal people. Well, by the time they got to that level, they got rid of all the worthless ones. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a very, you know, mission focused and, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, f- a very flat organization uh, mm-hmm. as far as communication goes. It's just a, it's just a unique place. You know, I always tell people, Hey, look, if you have a job, um, where you have, um, you want to look at three things in your job. You want to look at the mission, you want to look at the team and you want to look at the leadership. Mm-hmm. Usually most people will have like two of those yeah. like dialed in. They'll have a good team, a good mission. Maybe the leaders aren't that good or they'll have a good leaders, good team. Maybe the mission is not that great. Right. Um, you know, and that's enough to kind of sustain somebody for a job. But, but they're, you know, they're in that organization. It was all three, yeah. you know, all three in spades. So you had yeah. a great team, great leadership and, and just a phenomenal mission. So, so that was kind of a high point to finish my military career. And then I was talking to a friend of mine that's a, another colonel that uh, another doctor, that, you know, a great friend and colleague, and uh, he'd retired a couple years ahead of me. And he's a very successful chief medical officer in the Austin area. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, you know, what's this retirement thing about? He says, Bob, you got to take at least six months just to defrag the hard drive. Right. I said, I'm taking it a year. Yeah. And so uh, it took a year. You know, when you retire from the military, they'll store your stuff for up to a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my house in Texas was being rented out to another doctor who wanted to stay there another year. I said, I told my wife, I said, we're going to travel around the world. We're going to hike all the classic trails of the world mm-hmm. for a year. And so we uh, started in Iceland and we hiked our way around to uh, Thailand. And that was that was uh, in March of 2020 when the COVID hit. So, yeah. so but we, we had a great time. I mean, we hiked about seven or 800 miles of classic trails. We climbed Kilimanjaro. We climbed Mount Kenya. In Kenya, we climbed Mount uh, Tubacal in Morocco. We did the Tour de Mount Blanc and the High Route in the Alps. We hiked in Iceland and and we did the Kungsleden Trail up in the Arctic Circle in Sweden. And uh, we hiked to Petra in Jordan. We just had a great time. Yeah. Uh, and then the uh, the COVID hit, so we had to cut our trip short and come back sooner. Yeah. Um, but, uh, from there I started a consulting business, um, did a brief, uh, Senate time in the Pentagon as a Trump political appointee as the deputy principal deputy assistant secretary, secretary of defense for health affairs. Um, that was in, uh, September of 2020. I thought the election was going to go a different way. And yeah, didn't we all? Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, so I was up there from September till January and then, uh, I went back to consulting. That's what I do right now. So I have a number of customers I look after. I do some mission support work, some training, and do some medical device uh, consulting, things like that. All right. Well, that sounds good, man. Well, how are you liking your time here at Rifles Only? No, it's been a blast. You know, so most of my time has been shooting pistol and carbine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this was the first time I really had a chance to wrap my head around, you know, shooting out to a long distance with a precision rifle. So it's it's been a lot of fun. And so I've got a lot of, a lot of uh, stuff to take back home and, and uh, wrap into my into my, you know, my training regimen for the year and, and, uh, and, you know, plus minus buy another couple of guns. So, <laughs> so we'll see. Well, you've been, you've been shooting a rifles only house gun, which is a uh, Accuracy International. So I, I think, I think y'all are kind of a connected at the hip now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 You'll end up with one of those. Well, man, um, 
uh, again, it's just I'm I'm really in awe of your career. I'm in awe of what you've done. I'm in awe of what you've accomplished, as well as your personality. You're just a great guy. You're, it's been fantastic having you here. And uh, man, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, Jacob. Thanks for having me. And I really enjoyed the training out here uh, uh, this this week. Well, good. Come back. Don't be a stranger. Oh, we, gotta, I, I, we have a match on the 29th. So if I'm, come I'm back. not sure I'll be match ready, but I'll definitely come back. And oh, you're match matches. ready. You're match ready. <laughs> That's not a problem at all. Yeah. So the rest of you guys out there, again, um, thank you for taking the time to, to listen to us over here on the Rifles Only Accuracy podcast. If you have questions, comments, concerns, send them to ROAP at RiflesOnly.com. We appreciate it. Check out the website, www.RiflesOnly.com. Uh, any of the gear that you need, call Lisa or Leslie and they can get you sorted out. You want to do classes, that means you're going to have to talk to me. Just figure out what works out with your schedule and let me know. Uh, if you want to get into some private instruction, let me know that as well. You can just call the office number for that. Thank you all for taking the time to be here with me. 